you know, you don't write albums like on a yearly basis. It takes a while before I get my music from you. Um, (laughs) I'm going to look at that. I'm going to really look at that. No, no, no. no. It's all right on time. And it all is coming from such an organic place, which I think is why you've stood the test of time and why you have such dedicated devotee fans like Mm. myself, because it's authentic and you can't rush that. Right. Yeah. And so it's just got to be natural and flow. So Mm -hmm. what brought this one on? This one was postpartum. I started it in Malibu with Onyx. And I mean, I think of the song Losing the Plot uh, and Diagnosis as me just going, okay, so I feel really pathologized. I feel, you know, everything about postpartum, unless someone's experienced it, it's a tough one to explain. People have a general sense of what you mean when you say depressed or anxious. Postpartum in general have whole other elements to it of these invasive thoughts and they're terrifying. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm Pretty Intense. Today on the show is my favorite artist of all time, Alanis Morissette. I have been a fan of hers for obviously since the Jagged Little Pill days. It's such an honor to be able to interview her. I was lucky enough to finally meet her in 2008, I think it was, at her concert. But she's uh, she's just, you'll hear in the episode, she's just such a deep, fascinating person. It's no wonder that her music is so meaningful, interesting, and so resonant because there's just so much emotion that goes into all of it. And so um, you'll get a, a really good glimpse into to the way she thinks and the things that she deals with, her or- orientation with that and, and the music itself and how she processes and, you know, how she processes on stage. Uh, she's a, she's just a really fascinating, deep human being. And it's just my honor to finally interview her. So please enjoy the episode. So what, what what's up with the new haircut? It's so cute and blonde. I feel like I did that last summer, actually. I went short and blonde. I saw that. Last time I saw you, it was a little... Yeah, Arm, right. ombre action. You know, pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What else can we attribute under this phrase "pandemic"? Uh, pretty much everything at this point. The whole. I feel like everyone's thawing out right now, but then realizing, oh gosh, what does it mean that the world's going to come back to being something that maybe it was before? A little more adjusted now that we spent the last year in what we were doing. Wow, what a time! Right. Cause it's not about actually like, cause the, the total phrase is like, Oh, when's everything going to be normal again? But nobody really wants actually what was normal. People want a new no. normal. So the yeah. question is, is what is that new normal? You know? And yes. And it's up to us like, to decide collectively, I guess, but you know, take our time, especially those of us who have sensitive temperaments, right? It's just slow reintegration. <laughs> Hopefully nothing has to happen overnight, but I think, uh, for me, it's about continuing some of the self-care stuff. Mm, that you had time for. Yeah. <laughs> right? If it's meditating or whatever it is. I speaking with, with my doctor yesterday, and she was like, your cortisol levels are pretty high. And I said, yeah, that feels about right. We're all reintegrating any second. And, and I said, and how does one address this? <laughs> She's like, you know, meditation, sleeping. 
So I got to start doing that again. Um, well, what, 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 uh, why, what's the strat, what's going, what's the, what's the cortisol for, for right now? Is there something going on that is new? Yeah. I'm just playing with hormones. You know, it's like I'm breastfeeding, but I'm also perimenopausal to get a little TMI for you right out of the gate. Um, so playing with hormones and then not sleeping a lot because I still feed and nurse through the night. And, you know, just trying to be the the primary breadwinning macro service person and the attachment mom unschooling and then running a whole business. And you know how it is trying to do a lot of different things at once. You know, it's not to bash men, but women have a lot of shit to do and a lot of shit to deal with. Yes. And they, you know, there's the, what is it called? Like the secret load, the, the mother load. <laughs> oh my oh, God. There's, it's totally. just, the, you know, all the things that we do that we never really acknowledge, but it gets done every day. You know, the subtle stuff, like totally. even the social convening in some ways, I know some, all genders do that <clears throat> and non-genders, but something about being in charge of the social tenure of our little community here too. That's its own full-time job. Ah, do you feel, you feel like that's more of a woman's more, more like women normally take charge of that? Or is that just your role? Um, Sometimes I think stereotypically women in general are a little more relational. We're not shamed for being relational as much. We're still shamed for being relational and vulnerable, but not as much as men. So, um, but in my, yeah, in my role here is very much to keep, you know, you just, I'm constantly just checking to see what needs to be addressed, who needs to be hugged. And then I have some great therapists for me and that's Amen. Key. Amen for therapy. Moment of silence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I like, I can't, I actually, I, I, I've come around and around on therapy because like, I did it a hundred years ago when I was married and then it just didn't end well. And then I was like, screw therapy. And then, you know, I went for a span of time that there was none of that. And then all of a sudden it was like, all of a sudden after the last relationship, it was like, I need therapy. And then I'm like, wait a second, people should always be in therapy <laughs> and you should be doing your own therapy. Like I believe in couples therapy. Sure. But not if you're not doing your own. Well, I think they kind of go together because there are certain things that you that I'm only going to dive into if it's just about me in that moment. You know, it's a super deep dive, some parts. I do a lot of IFS, internal family systems therapy. And what's great about that particular model for me is that it, it's the deep dive alone, facilitated by a great therapist. And then to me, the idea of couples IFS therapy, meaning we can this part of you can speak with this part of me and is this like parts therapy or is this a different kind of is there any actual modalities used other than sort of verbal and going inward or is is there this isn't something like, like emdr or anything like that is it uh it's a model it's richard schwartz started it i just wrote the forward for his new book that's coming out it's called no bad parts mm, love it and i've been an, i've been a parts girl for as long as i can remember i just you know, if someone said, asked me how I was feeling, I would say, well, one part of me feels this and the other 13 parts feel this. Um, but we have that even in our family with my kids. If I ask anyone how they're feeling, it's usually more than one answer. That's interesting. Do you think that that is and like something they're born with or something that you've taught them? Like, do they, have you given them the tools to tap into that or is it sort of a modeling? 
I think it's a straight up curiosity. Like, how are you feeling about that? You know, and and what part of you feels that or what part of you thinks that that, you know, it's, it's just a curiosity about their parts. And then because I know Richard Schwartz's model so well, and I'm obsessed with it, um, it's just part of our family's lingo now, you know, I mean, parts work is just, you know, Carl Jung, and then segued into Debbie Ford, really taking it to another level. I think her work really blossomed it into culture a little more. And then Richard Schwartz just taking it to a whole other level. We're like casually dropping in here, but I feel like it's because we had like two and a half hours when we did the Lindsay Zarniak um, uh, artist and the athlete interview. And we just sat there and you and I, I was like, I felt kind of bad for Lindsay because (laughs) Pluto didn't, you know, she didn't get a word in very much, but like we just went on and on. So I feel like this, this interview is like a continuation of the conversation we were having, which has so much to do with the internal work and spirituality and orientation and perception, um, triggers, projections, all the damn words, all the damn words. But like, it can't be missed that I'm just such like, you're just, as I was getting ready for this, it's like, man, you are my all time favorite artist. And so I'm like pausing for a moment to remember how much I just like love your music. So I know that we just like totally dropped into all kinds of things, (laughs) but I feel like people should just know how big of a fan I am and how, um, how interesting it is, how much we resonate on this other level that really is like, you know, nothing to do with essentially it's not music. We're not talking about an album. We're not talking about a tour, although I want to, and we will. <laughs> um, I do. Uh, Cause I have like tickets from all directions for the tour. <laughs> that and You're I'm like, going to be there. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. I think that's interesting how I can be such a big fan. And here we are on in this whole other way connecting why do you think that is? Do you think is there some kind of resonance that is unspoken? Yeah, I think and sometimes we do speak it. You know, it's just it's it's a value system. So I think what we value is is resonant and if we want to break down what some of those are, you know, we value I value connection and I believe you do too, just even your capacity for intimacy and and connection and wanting to even have a bond, you know, our, our survival strategies might be similar. We love to, we love conversation. We might have, we might be the same number on the Enneagram. I have no idea. <laughs> um, but also I think you and I are up for the deep dive of diving into the unknown. You know, there's a, there's a sort of constitutional type of temperament and spirit, I think. And for, you know, the, the symbology of pedal to the metal, foot on the brake. I mean, that's me all the time. I'm, I'm, ca- I'm going a hundred miles an hour and then I realize I have to stop and the, the gears are grinding, but I'm like, Oh, sorry. I'm using this freaking metaphor with you of all people. <laughs> but you should. It's totally also not sorry. <laughs> I think you and I have the similarity of curiosity too. And I like to just know the, the lowest common denominator. I love breaking things down to their essence or to you know, to why something, why I was acting out in a certain way or why I was quiet. And, you know, I just, I'm really curious um, about this human condition. You know, it's not always easy to be in these, these meat sacks. (laughs) I love the little, there's like a little gif or meme or whatever it is. And it's, it shows uh, somebody down on earth in a little bubble of thoughts, like, like, 
this coming to earth thing was a lot harder than I thought it'd be. Mm. Right? Amen. Yeah, it's really hard. My aunt and I, we communicate a lot and she's always like, why did you come here? This is an interesting journey for, for everyone, frankly, you know, but it's, you know, there's some tools as we know, but trying to figure out toolfulness in the, from ego is already kind of set up to lose in a way. If, if the goal is to be just happy, you know, or if the goal is to be just one state, I don't think emotional states were built to be constant. I mean, they're all messenger, you know, messengers and messages for us. So for me, it's about the degree of listening and tuning in. And, and when I'm not doing it, I feel disconnected from God and from myself and from my loved ones. And it doesn't, mm. it's not a comfortable feeling. That's when it's not fun to be in the body for me. But when the connection is fostered and I am, you know, looking at different parts and communicating from this really, really soulful place, then I can feel connected to life and everyone around me. But it's, uh, you know, the, the, the chase of the happiness thing was really trendy for like 50 years. And I think it's, I think now it's the, for me, the chase, if there is an egoic chase, it's to stop resisting how hard it is to be human sometimes and how beautiful it is too. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Is your aunt alive? You mm -hmm. said communicate. Okay. I wasn't oh, sure yeah. if you were. Oh, yeah. I do that too, but she happens to be in her body. I, it's so funny. You know what's so funny is before this, I was like, I thought I'm like, I wonder what your like if you have what your psychic capacity is. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely I can conjure it. <laughs> it I mean, I don't do it a lot, but I ever since I was very little, I can I don't know what what the term would be. I do have a capacity to hear messages or connect with people who aren't in the body or I have to be careful though. So I think it's it's being an empath, so 30% of people are highly sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and then of that 30, 20 to 30%, 4% um, of them are empaths. And some of them are medium type empaths. Some of them are animal empaths, plant empaths, you know, and, and they're linked to the intelligences. So you asked about my capacity and it's really, I think it's, it's a gift, you know, it's scary sometimes to be picking up so much information no matter what. And that's one of the stresses, cortisol, for the reintegration into this new normal is the idea of like, wow, okay, I have to, I have to pace myself. And, you know, I just pick up on so much information that I, you know, I just have to prepare myself for hiding in bathrooms again. <laughs>
Yeah. I, well, I mean, I think that that's, that's more, I mean, there's, there's people out there that deal with that. I mean, I have a couple of friends who just, you know, pick up a lot of energy and it's not how I work, but, um, uh, what are the tools? Because I, I feel like there's got to be someone that's like, oh my God, that's me. I walk around and there's all this information and it's so overwhelming. And then I feel like that also contributes to, you know, how much anxiety is out there in the world and how many people suffer with anxiety. Cause that's a real thing. And I didn't actually, I mean, I didn't experience it until last year, a couple of times. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? Like full blown um, panic attack, you mean, or? Um, like unable to get out of a thought. Like I couldn't choose a good thought. Right. Like I was sort of like spinning. Ruminating. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it just kind of created a lot of like, you know, body, heart rate, panic, um, like rampant journaling all of a sudden trying to get something out. And I had never, I, I mean, I really only had it probably three times. But it was, it gave me this new understanding for what it's like to pick up energy because it was when I was picking up the energy of something else and someone else that it would happen. And so, you know, I think that's, uh, that's something people really deal with and it's hard to find your way out of it. And there's, there's, there have been so many more books and and much more literature being made available now about, about being an empath. There's a woman, Rose Rose Tree, who's written a few books. I think one of them was called Empowered Empath, The Master Empath. Um, you know, and and there's different schools. I, I, I really enjoy when the distinction is kept between empath and HSP because um, they're not the same. Mm, what's the difference? Um, highly sensitive temperament. You know, the acronym that Elaine Aaron goes with, um, she coined the phrase and is a brilliant, brilliant mind and heart. Um, and I had the privilege of of being in a documentary that she made entitled Sensitive. Mm-hmm. And and one of the best ways she describes it is, is by the acronym DOES. So D for depth of processing for a highly sensitive. Um, uh, o for overstimulation or quickly overstimulated in that as an HSP, I can walk in the room. And if a non-HSP were to pick up 50 pieces of information upon walking into a room... In theory, the highly sensitive temperament picks up on 500 pieces. So it would make sense then that highly sensitives need to kind of pace ourselves and recalibrate. It doesn't take me long either. There are some nights where I'll turn to my son and my husband and I'll just say, if I don't have six minutes of complete silence, I'll be back in six minutes. You know, I can't even be here. My head's going to pop off emoji. So, um, and the, the, the retilling of the soil can happen really quickly. And then the empath, sorry, I didn't finish the acronym. Then E for um, empathy, you know, a tendency toward being extra empathic um, and, and d- deeply felt emotions, you know, like sometimes someone will feel something and I'll feel it in my chest. It feels almost debilitating, you know, and um, not everyone feels it so debilitatingly in the, in the body. Um, and then S for subtleties, sort of attuned to subtleties and, you know, picking up on certain smells and all the senses, basically. Um, and then empath is just a different kind of attunement and awareness and and the picking up of people's energy or, you know, I used to have it as a kid, too. I remember once my brother hurt his ankle and then I couldn't walk, you know, so I would have sort of this physical body empath um, thing. But in Rose Rosetree's book, she literally breaks down the kinds of empaths. And the good news and the confusing news is that there are a lot of books coming out right now, and most of them agree with each other. 
<laughs> but it's the, the exciting thing is that it's part of the conversation now because in the psychotherapeutic community, no one wanted to talk about two things they didn't want to talk about. They didn't want to talk about attachment parenting and attachment theory, which mm-hmm. I think now we're kind of blending it together as, as humans. Um, and they also... No one wanted to touch temperament. I don't know why until mm. Elaine Aaron came around. So the more we can talk about this, I think, the better, because there are all these artists in the 27 Club and people committing suicide and depression and anxiety. I mean, it's so much of it is born from being sensitive and from being an empath. And if we're not equipped to even understand what that is, we're subject to thinking that, you know, we're cursed or that there's something wrong with us or... Mm-hmm. When the opposite is true, you know, we do have to be responsible for it, though. You know, I'm, I have to be really clear about what I need in order to do something. And that could be that could be as simple as, is there a room that has a door that I can go in at the office that we're going to? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> I can go, <laughs> you know, but if there's nowhere to hide or there's nowhere to regroup, it's, it's a rough one. Hmm. Yeah, you just said a couple of things, a few things that I feel like I've been diving into so much over the last year, being like attachment theory and attachment styles. Um, and I, the difference between that parent and your own, your own attachment style and parenting attachment, um, how, cause I would lop them into the same, like you just have an attachment style and you get it from your parents. But what is the difference between attachment parenting and attachment theory? Um, well, for me, they're, they're bed, they're they're bedfellows, you know? So, Attachment parenting is what it actually looks like, you know, so it could be anything that that just basically fosters the bond. So, yes, it could be breastfeeding, but it could be bottle. It could be anything. Um, Contact, skin, eye contact, super attunement, responsivity. Frankly, I would throw in gentleness and anything that would create a secure bond to the point where they'll I love watching when it whence the secure bond is being evidenced. It's not always. But when it is, I love it because, you know, they'll come sit on my lap, they'll get the the love, the oxytocin, and then they'll say, bye, you know, and then they're off. And it, it's the greatest. I mean, that's secure attachment. But, you know, I'm my attachment style is a little bit ambivalent, sometimes disorganized. Um, and it's just born from a different style of having been raised. I think in the 70s and 80s, it was just a different world. And you know, there was a lot more onus. I was thinking about this yesterday. There's so much onus on partners prioritizing each other above the kids. And Mm. on paper, that sounds great. (laughs) However, good luck, because your kids are developing in a way, you know, the inner child of my husband, let's say, the inner children of my husband, he can deal with it in therapy, I can deal with it with him in couples therapy. But these young little creatures are 100% dependent on us for their development of their brain and their bones and their body and their empathy and their... And there's a lot of studies now that say that they continue to need it in a pretty primary way, not just, you know, they turned 18, so get out of here, to the point where it's almost 10 years later, like late 20s is when I think there's a natural segueing into, okay, now I'm ready to fully differentiate and go out into the world. But that's a lot higher of a number than we used to allow for, right? It was like, okay, you get your license at 16, all these passages that we're supposed to just barrel through. Um, but I think the the attachment conversation never goes away. I think it's really, really present in romantic committed partnerships. I mean, that's where we see where our styles totally. uh, you know, resonate or deviate or 
And you know, if the the the, the, the ambivalent one can can cause the come here go away, the secure one's lovely. You know, a nice eye contact and connectivity, and the ability to be vulnerable and listen to each other non judgmentally. I mean, secure is the ideal, and, and certainly there's such thing as be, being an, an earned secure. You know, like you can do a lot of you like what you're doing and what I do. You know, we can we can earn that sense of security um, as an adult, which is the best news because you know the whole thing of you can't yeah. you can't live your childhood over again. It's like you can't, but there is healing available. Right. Well, I love to say you know that you know our wounds are not our fault, but our healing is our responsibility. You know, like you you. Can't. It just happens. Everybody's got a certain style. Everybody's got something. And, um, you know, when my therapist told me last summer, nobody holds the keys. I'm like, oh, shit. You're like, I'm just going to sit here and wait to see if that's true for 20 years. I got to do all this myself. <laughs> can I just, yeah, can I just wait it out for a little bit and see how this what? goes? <laughs> but I do think that we're, I think what's becoming cool and trendy now, thank God, not a moment too soon, is that we are becoming really clear, pandemic and all, we're, it's becoming really clear that we do need each other, right? This whole autonomous, like, you got to do it yourself. And if you don't love yourself, how's anyone going to love you? It's like, okay, that's a little more easily done for me in parts work, because then the perspective that I'm communicating with these parts from, you know, it the invitation for me is to be in that high capital S self, the highest self that has, as Richard Schwartz calls it, you know, all the C's. So creative, centered, you know, confidence, um, curious. So I love all that because when I'm in that state, it means that I'm in my, you know, whatever we want to call it, my highest self. And then I can behold and dialogue with these parts, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, but sometimes I'm not. And sometimes I think I'm in my seat, but it's these other parts that are trying to come in and they they try to blend, you know. So it's really about being discerning, like, what part of me is saying this? What part needs attention? What part is this terrified part? And can I create a little distance? You know, Eckhart Tolle would call it disidentifying a little bit with the thought, but also with the part. Some, can I create some disidentification with this part so I can actually yeah. dialogue with it? You know, so... It's heady stuff, but once once it becomes habitual, it's it's mandatory for me. When I'm if I don't do any kind of inner work for a few days in a row, um my personality just sucks. <laughs> in the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. <laughs> well, I doubt that's true. Um, but when did that, I mean, like the, the, the biggest question always is like, where did it start? Like, was there like something that happened, a catalyst, a breakdown? Because the spiritual journey, the self-reflective journey is um, usually, I mean, it's some, sometimes it takes a trigger um, and perhaps maybe it's an always been in you, but was there something that led you down this path? Because once you get on the train, like you never get off, right? No, I feel it's like that's too exciting. Anyone I know that gets into spirituality and into working on themselves and like you never stop 
and there really is no end. I love like, uh, I love um, Abraham Hicks saying, you can't get it wrong and it's never done. Like it's just never done. No, I know. (laughs) You know, it's relaxing hearing that actually. Um, And you can't get it wrong because it's all part of the journey. Even the lows are able to alchemize into something beautiful. Like sometimes you need the extra low to actually have to grind kind of alchemy. Yeah. To get it out, to, <laughs> to break down, break it open. Yeah. So was there, is there any kind of story around it? Well, I think, first of all, I actually think the capacity to go inside, to journey into the interiority, there's so many fun, pretty ways to say it, you know, the, the going within muscle, you know, um, I actually think that's an intelligence. Howard Gardner uh, calls it intrapersonal intelligence. So interpersonal, relational. And then intra, like the capacity to go within and and see what's going on in there. Um, I mean, that's a propensity. That's an intelligence, I think. So we either have it and we sublimate it or I, you know, do any any version of addiction to like just numb out so I don't have to go in there because sometimes it's scary. But I have found that when I go in there with support, whether it's a therapist or a loved one or it's a lot easier. And I remember, I may have shared this with you when we spoke last, um, but I remember one time my son, who's now 10, he was probably three and he was feeling a lot of feelings. And I said, Hey, you want to go in there together and see what's going on in your heart? You know? And he said, Oh, I don't want to go in there. It's so scary. And I said, well, I'll go in with you. You know? And then he, and he said, okay. But just the idea that it's scary to go within is a pretty pervasive message in culture in general. So to have that muscle already kind of cooking is helpful. And I'm actually really comfortable in there. You know, it's, it's humans that scare me. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just increases my bravery. The more I know what's going on and the more informed I am and the more, frankly, a loving, objective person who is willing to share their advice or their opinion about what they see is a big deal because the, the developmental stage is crassly put from Margaret Mahler and Harville Hendricks and a few other people I mean, it's attachment and then exploration. So you want freedom and safety in there and the attachment as secure as possible. Then it's identity. Who are, who am I? And the only way we know when we're littles is if people are reflecting back like, wow, that was really strong or wow, that was really brave or, oh, are you feeling sad about that? Or, you know, someone who's just using words to mirror basically. And I think that is one stage of development that is egregiously overlooked in people. And then some of us wander around wondering why we're codependent, quote unquote, or why we're losing ourselves in relationships, or we don't have a sense of self, you know, and um, that mirroring part. And then the fourth one in theory is, is competence, like you can do it. You know, so, so of those four main ones that I, that I reference in the back of my mind, um, mirroring is the one that, that is the most deeply touching for me just because I appreciate it. And maybe it's a, it's part of our Canadian culture too. I think a lot of people are quick to just say what they see. And I think it's a great gift. Um, but I don't know why I shared that probably just because the, uh, that, that was a big part of c- continuing to cultivate the ability to go internally was to have someone almost marking it with me so that, it, so that I wasn't alone because it was so trendy to be autonomous for, you know, after the Second World War, all of a sudden women were like, this is great that you've been gone. I've learned how to live without you. And now it's cool to just be singular. It's cool to not need a partner. It's, you know, so it's a big trend toward 
um, autonomy, basically. But And that's wonderful and maybe empowering in some ways, but it doesn't create love. It doesn't create healing as much as it creates, it sort of cultivates empowerment, which of course we love, but that's incomplete without... Yeah without being able to lean on each other, you know? So the the real thing is like, when did that journey start? Was it after Jagged Little Pill? Was it when you were a kid? Was it writing music starting at 10 years old? Like, I mean, where did it start? Well, I think the archetype of artist, you know, I was always painting and <laughs> writing hilariously terrible poems. <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, drawing. I was just always feel, you know, desperate to be expressed actually. Mm. So... That's that was one of the quickest ways to pull myself out of these little mini depressions that I started having from probably ten years old onward. I had an eating disorder, and um, I just went to a therapist myself. And that journey of realizing that you know, I always think of it in terms of tennis playing. Like I just want to play tennis with someone who's a little bit better than me, so that I can, you know, so that I'm sweating. <laughs> I want to sweat. So, uh, so therapy just kickstarted this, you know, they also reading, to be honest, I'm such a biblio girl. Oh my gosh. Hello. Look behind you. I mean, hello. <laughs> let's, let's make the, obvious. I've got literally one shelf across the way. Okay. There's some up in the cupboard cause they don't all fit, but I'm like, I need to work on my book collection. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so basically books were my BFFs because they, you know, they were yeah. talking about things. These authors were all talking about things that I lived for, you know? Wow. What'd you learn? Because it sounds like perhaps, you know, the eating disorder was maybe part of it. Was there some big lesson that came from from that? Yeah, I just, I mean, there's two big ones that came during that time. A woman named Karen Koenig, I think that's her name, uh, wrote a book called Breaking Free from Food Something. It was a green book. And I remember reading it cover to cover, dog-eared. It's probably here somewhere. Um and that was really heartening. And then Fat is a Feminist Issue, Susie Arbach, I think that came out when I was a, a teenager. So just starting to read about feminism and objectification and hypersexualization. I mean, none of that made any sense to me when I was younger. It was just painful, you know? So, I mean, it's such a twisted web. To, I was just talking about this the other day. I'm like, wait a second. So like, we're supposed to, you know, you know, you're supposed to, you, you objectify and use the woman's body, but then you get mad when she uses it herself. Like you, you know what I mean? Like I, there's just such complication. It's like, you know, look, but don't touch kind of thing. And, you know, it's like frowned upon and judged yet used and exploited. And the whole thing is just so messy. Well, it's also egregiously incomplete again, like, because, you know, I don't, I don't mind any of it. Everything for the sake of art, you know, enjoy as long as you're safe, I guess. Um, <laughs> but when I see a hypersexualized music video or a performance, I just think, well, as long as everyone knows there's 650,000 other parts to that person, I suppose it's fine. I, the only time, the only time <laughs> I get You're like, sad, I'm not talking about the Grammys at all and what I saw on stage. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, you know, hypersexuality is what it is, you know, and, and if we're acting out, that's maybe something to look at. But if we're not, I would just... For me, I just have empathy and I just want everyone to know that like you, we are so much more than just this aesthetic and our, on our deathbeds, I think that'll be really clear that these bodies are really cool and we, let's decorate them and have fun with them and make the hairs blonde and do the fun stuff, right? It's the best. Um, 
Agreed. I said that the other day. I was I was putting makeup on. I'm like, do you think this is fun? Always. I'm like, look at how silly this is. Like, this is what is this I'm putting on? Yeah. Like, is there going to be a day we look back and just go, what were we doing? I don't think so. I think we're just going to think we were really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Be like, remember back in in 2016? (laughs) No, I think. I mean, makeup is. I, I love. You know, it's basically art. Yeah. You know, anything that's aesthetic or whatever is it's a beautiful for me it's part of self-expression so it's other, wearing other, sweatpants is part of self-expression for me at this point the sweatpants story <laughs> dude i have I, I i almost always put leggings on today i had short i have like these shorts that i went walking in just because you know they were out but normally it's leggings for sure yeah 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 no and the other day i wore really tight pants for some shoot and I came home and I was like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> it's because yeah. it was the first time I'd been out of sweatpants in a year. <laughs> Dude, I, I just get afraid to put a pair on. I'm like, I'm just like, if I put these on and they don't fit, I'm going to be so sad. So maybe I'll just keep wearing things that stretch. I think, that's, I'm really I think confident. that's the best. Well, until, until we're 112, then we can stop that. <laughs> no kidding. So how does all of this like play into music? Because... Well, first off, do you really, what is it? Do you really love music? Because I only ask it in that way because like when people ask about my career and it was over, I'm like, it wasn't really racing that I loved. I loved aspects of it, but it wasn't really racing itself. Well, it, I think that's a really great question. And it's, um, I loved writing when I was 10 years old. I just was, I couldn't fill enough journals up. It was just constant writing. And then <clears throat> after Jagged Little Pill came out, and, and everything that became associated with it. So I started associating writing songs with touring and radio mm. interviews at five in the morning. And so they all kind of got lopped in together. So some t- so at certain points before I met my husband, I was, you know, I, I, I no longer, I would no longer write for fun, basically, was the point. And I would watch him and he's an artist and he was just writing all the time. The guy writes a new record every two weeks. And so I asked him, I was, uh, you know, in a way that was, I'm sort of envious, like, how do you, how could I be influenced by you and, and get that joy back, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and we really just get, we got to the bottom of it. It's just that I associate overwork with art. So if I can separate them and uncouple them, writing songs is so fun. It's super hands, palm sweaty, exhausting. It feels, uh, Glenn Ballard, whom I have written with and wrote Jagged Little Pill with, he basically would, his metaphor was, you know, just getting the IV drip going. And then that's what songwriting was like. And and by the end of a song, we, we would write, and I still write really quickly. So the process is fast. The living of the life that's being commented on is sure. protracted and apparently 46 years. But, um, but the, the writing of the song takes 20 minutes, maybe. It's really super channeled. And I don't, I don't, I don't think I maybe more than once have have gone back to fix anything or tweak it or change it because it's just a capturing. But to answer your question about whether I like it, I think when I haven't done it in a while, I yearn for it. 
I do. I, I miss it terribly. And making the joyful noise, you know, singing and sweating and playing instruments and being with my bandmates is the greatest. We're about to put a song out called I Miss the Band. <laughs> and I can't get through it without being a weeping mess and just picturing us all reconvening over the next few months to go on tour again, wh- whenever that moment is. Um, I'm just going to be a puddle, I think. Do you think when do you guys think you'll tour in 2021 or is this more like a 2022 rollout or what's happening because i i will be there <laughs> so maybe yeah. the whole thing i might like put a sticker on the back of my car and yes although is it a world tour because if it is that'd be also awesome the tour that was canceled was a world tour yeah. and we're going to reinvigorate the american part of it with an eye toward probably trickling into 2022 uh-huh. as everything becomes a little bit um easier around travel basically mm-hmm. you know because it's just not it's not possible to tour and have a two week quarantine <laughs> every new country that we get to it's just not tenable but yeah, um yeah. but the thought uh, to, as of today this could change it changes a lot um is that we, we'll go back on tour the end of august or, or early september of this year do you know who else is a huge fan of yours that <laughs> i found out the other day i don't think he'd be mad that i said this um i got a text uh like a week ago maybe two weeks ago and it was something, and it, he had seen the our, our interview with Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, my God. He's like, I love that interview you did with Alanis. How cool. I'm such a big fan. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Oh. <laughs> like a giant, giant fan. And I was like, man, I had tickets for so many shows. Like, because it was like for Christmas, but everybody was getting me oh. things that I would like. And a few people got me tickets to your concert. <laughs> Awesome. So, um, in different places. So, um, so yes. Uh, but I said, we're going to have to like get together and go see her when she gets on tour. And he's like, I would love that. Oh, like, awesome. Dale Earnhardt Jr. is such a big fan. Oh my God. Yeah. He best not to tell me who's in the audience. Cause then I'll get all, I'll get all jittery. <laughs> I really? I, I have a lot of friends who do theater and they specifically don't want to know when I'm coming to see the show because then you're just unconsciously aware of that person. I don't know if you have that, but I definitely enjoy hearing who was there later after. Yeah, <laughs> I think if there's, yeah, I mean, I can see that. I guess what I would say is that I feel like when I'm put harder on the spot, when there's more pressure, more going on, I do better. I would say that then when I get into the mode of whatever it is that I'm doing, it's like my consciousness shifts or dimension shift and I, and I access a new space Mm. and I'm not thinking at all about them. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that is a muscle right there. (laughs) That's the focus, single focus muscle too. It's very Mm. masculine and quite gorgeous. Mm. Is it because maybe there's pauses? Is that, do you enter a different space when you get on stage? Is there I mean, well, because even, you know, people would say like someone was saying the other day, seeing you backstage when you were young and then like you'd get on stage and it was just like, you know, just so much more energy. And so, you know what I mean? Like someone says like holding a teddy bear or something like that back in the jagged little pill days or something. So, you know, what happens is there, is it a natural transition into a different space or do you do something to get there. Yeah. I mean, these are all amazing questions. God bless you, Danica. Um, I don't, I mean, I hug my bandmates and we'll have an intention for the night. If someone needs extra love or prayerfulness or anything, we'll, we'll throw them into the intention behind the show. And, um, but mostly we offer it up to the people that are there, but that's the only real ritual I do. Um, 
my friends used to laugh because I'd be chatting with them and I'd be like, okay, uh, okay, I'll be back in a minute, you know, and then I'm just on stage. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, we were just back in talking. a minute, you'll be back in two hours. <laughs> You're like, you just, you weren't even finished your last sentence and you're halfway out there. Um, so I guess my point in sharing that is it feels very, the good news is I remember Gangaji talking about, you know, meditating versus not meditating. And she said, ideally, you know, I'm sorry if I'm not using the right words that she used, but the, the essence of what she said was ideally the meditation would just be throughout your whole life and throughout your day that everything becomes a meditation. So, So in that way, being on stage, communicating, even having a conversation, writing an email, it, it's all information coming from someplace. And the good news about being on stage for me is that it's a very physical release. So it's an invitation certainly for other people to come join me in that process. Um, and it is therapeutic and cathartic. It's not healing though, because it's not relational. Um, because I used to think like, oh, this is gonna be great. I'll write all these songs and I don't have to talk to anybody. It's perfect. <laughs> um, but there is something to be said for just the expression itself, moving the energy so it doesn't get stuck and we don't get sick. So it's like somatic, kind of like somatic healing on stage. It is a hundred percent. It's, it's definitely that. And, and then I allow the music to just take over, you know, just take over my whole body. And, and there are times where I, you know, I got to knock on wood and cross my fingers and everything but there are there are nights where I'll I'll have laryngitis and I can't even speak and then I'll just pray 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 <laughs> and then I get out on stage and I have the voice and then I get off stage and I can't speak again so there are time I, I mean I don't want to jinx anything by having said that but but there are magical things that happen is my point <laughs> there's things yeah. that I just can't believe are happening and and um you know, I do ask to be used for service. If I'm serving, I can pretty much muscle my way. I can white knuckle through almost anything if I'm serving. Mm. What is that service that you want to provide? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I would invite is, uh, is that their full humanity would be allowed in the room and the audience and the interaction that, that they would feel safe to move with me or, if some lyric or some chord choice, that universal language of music, if something were to conjure an emotion in them that that they're safe to feel it, you know, if they need to cry through the whole song or the show, if they need to rage out. And I can feel it. It's a sweet, energetic dialogue, you know. I can tell a little bit about people's cultures a little bit just by how emotive they are or aren't. Or, you know, it's it's a fascinating cultural study to be on stage, to be honest. But there is that point. I think it's what you said where you get into that place. Mm-hmm. And nothing nothing can interrupt that flow then, you know. And it's the current. I mean, I, I call it the current sometimes. And, and the speed with which it goes through our bodies, literally, as filters, is something that I'm fascinated with because – some of us, you know, the, the energy is going so fast that, you know, bumping into things. And um, I know a lot of artists that it's it's almost a mania. You know, it's like, wow, okay. It's a lot of energy. But, um, <clears throat> you know, the key for me, it's like how, how to fill the cup, how to, you know, and sleep. <laughs> sleep is number one and it's the hardest one for me. That's a good, that is, that's an interesting question. What is it that fills your cup up? Sleep. Does sleep keep you balanced or does it fill your cup up? Depends on how great the sleep was. <laughs> Depends on how cozy the blankets are. Um, <laughs> and the cuddles. Yes, the snugs. 
I mean, sleep brings me to ground zero. Um, Alison Armstrong used to talk about how needs bring us to zero. And then wants take us into that sort of happy state a little bit. Um, in that kind of dopamine rewardy thing. But um, yeah, I, I do a lot of hot water. <laughs> it could be the sound of water. I think sensitives are, are really recharged by being near the ocean or ions or lakes or fountains, anything, you know, tea, soup, hot showers, you know. You're, you know what? That's interesting because I think for me, like the friends that are really more empathic or uh, there's probably one that's more empathic and the other one's probably highly sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, and they both love water. Like, I mean, one of them loves mountains too, but, um, yeah, yeah. One of them in particular really loves water. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a thing. Like if I'm not around it or I haven't gone swimming or I haven't gone to a Creek or something, I start they start getting really. What about just earthing? What about just earthing. putting your feet on the ground and just simply earthing? Actually, yes. you know what's so funny? My girl Haley, who's worked with me forever, she got me this mat. Hang on, I, my feet are on it right now, but it's like a grounding mat that you Ooh. put your feet on. So, and you can sleep with them too. I have sheets that are grounding sheets, and you plug the, you ground them into the outlet, and then it just um, the stillness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, my feet are on it. I'm in. I'm, I'm Googling this right after. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> grounding sheets, grounding pads. It's called earth and moon. Yes. Um, no, so a lot of bare, I'm barefoot almost all the time when I can be. And are you? we have gardens and uh, that, hel that helps, but water still trumps everything for me, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What have you found that's like been part of your routine that has stood the test of time or at least really, you know, cause we go through, I go through phases. I don't know about you, but I go through phases of things that just seem like they're working or maybe I need it now and then it fades out and then it might come back. Um, but what sticks around all the time that's tried and true that you're like, if I can't do this, um, I know that I start to lose orientation with where I'm at and how things are going. Yeah, I mean, food, high nutrient, you know, people ask me what I am, and I just say I'm a nutritarian, I like nutrients. <laughs> so if food is off, I'm off. Um, sleep, obviously, the, the classics. But um, s silence, you know, just three kids unschooling at home, big career, <laughs> a lot of hyper communication around here in a, in a really beautiful way, but it's just a lot of incoming information. So for me, if I can just find a place to be still and I have to admit I used to watch my brother wear earplugs and I was just in awe I was like you were just walking around wearing earplugs like who cares and he said yeah it's great so I tried it last week and it brought my anxiety up because I'm I'm hyper vigilant and I wasn't able to hear as well but it also calmed me down so quickly super regulated are you a so, Gemini right aren't you a Gemini mm -hmm. yeah you love information yes Yes, and sometimes. The oh my God, it's your dualistic issue in life. You love information, yet there's too much information. Why does Earth do this to us? It's not fair. I think I think Earth also delivers these amazing authors and supports that can orient us. I just you know I wished it happened a little earlier, but here we are. You know, and how to manage it? How to manage this situation? You know, so that I'm still capable of being relational, but I'm still human. You know the the fallibility of being human and that I could be sitting across from someone who would love me and not judge what's mm. going on. The other thing too, for the self-care one is touch, mm. non-sexual touch specifically for, I mean, sexual touch is healing if it's 
if it's consent, happy, happy. Um, but t- just touch, massage, yeah. you know, just like. So are you, I mean, Five Love Languages is obviously such a universal book and, mm-hmm. you know, ground zero for exploration. But do yes. you know, do you, I mean, you've probably read it. Uh, yes, I am a words of, I'm a words of affirmation. <laughs> words of affirmation is yours? Mm-hmm. What's yours? Yeah. A physical touch. Oh, that's my husband's. Is it? So do yeah. you find that it's, um, is it hard to do, to give him his? Because we tend to give what we want to get, right? So yes. you probably give him tons of words of affirmation. Mm, I could do better gives at you plenty of physical touch. <laughs> yes, yes. Hilarious. And I'm overstimulated by like breastfeeding all night and everything. So I'm just like, oh. I bet, right? Um, That's yeah, why well, I mentioned cuddling because I'm thinking like, you know, because being a physical touch person, I'm like, and in bed, you cuddle, of course, I mean, right? What else right, does right, 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 right. <laughs> In bed, in bed, you don't stop cuddling. My dad said, <laughs> I was like, this is really intense. He's like, first of all, you have three children, my dad said. And then he goes, and it's only hard for the first 60 years, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. But I remember talking with Eileen Aaron, who wrote The Highly Sensitive Person, and, and I had just um, – I had – my son ever was born and, and I was talking with her about having more kids and I hope I'm not speaking out of school by sharing this. Um, but she, she basically was like, be careful as an HSP having more than one child is incredibly overstimulating, you know, <laughs> cut to, I have three kids and I'm very overstimulated. <laughs> so, tons of work, everything from like album that just, you know, came out last year to, I mean, Broadway, Holy crap, I can't think of anything more time and labor intensive than Broadway. Um, I mean, planning a tour. Wow, you really fill your plate up. Yeah, there's some work addiction going on. And then there's also just this sort of multi, what do we call us creatures, us Geminis, us multi-potentialites, where I have so many ideas mm-hmm. and I'm happy to execute them all. I'm happy to complete them all. But just it's just running the- out of time, just running out of time. Right? <laughs> I love that nature of a Gemini, just like skim on the surface, you know, know about so many different things and like also like a lot about some things, but definitely consuming so much information. I I love that. Constant research. And that's also what makes me a a good candidate for unschooling because, you know, if my son or my daughter have, if they have any questions, it's just, you know, we're just always researching. Do you homeschool your kids? Yeah. you do. Uh, yeah, I'm we so unschool. about that because I, I feel like, you know, I don't know if I'll ever have kids or not, but um, I'm like, I don't think I'd want to do it the traditional way. Like, I don't, mm. I don't know why. I just don't, I don't know. I just, it doesn't seem, seems outdated. It seems like a lot of information that you don't end up using again. It seems really restrictive from a travel standpoint and, and living and yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, I mean, it's, I, I think of how hard it is for people to be in a classroom. And, you know, some of us are really physical. Like my parents used to say, I would never stop moving. You know, I was always, I'd be answering a question and twirling and dancing. And they'd say, could you just sit still for 10 seconds? Um, so yeah, unschooling. I mean, it's, it's, it's so hyperintuitive. It's very comprehensive and, and it takes a lot of energy because there's no, all right, school starts at 8 a.m. and is done at 3, it's 24-7. So if if I have the energy and my son asks me something at midnight, I'm answering it, you know, and we're, and we're going to have that conversation when I can. But um, I love it because there's such multiple interests, and we, we loosely reference Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory, and 
that helps, you know, so physical. I love that concept. Can you explain that concept too? Either now or at the end, I want to hear about the school, but multiple intelligence is such a cool concept. I totally believe in that. It's helpful because when people go, oh, that person's so smart, you know, my first question is like smart, smart, how, you know, smart physically, smart musically, smart logically, smart, smart mathematically, naturalist intelligence, people that have a natural green thumb. Um, What are the other ones? There's. Um, do I have it on my whiteboard over here? <laughs> I don't. Um, but yeah, so I'm missing a few. But I remember asking Howard Gardner if I audaciously could add a couple of them, you know, and he said, absolutely. Because I think comedic intelligence is actually a form of intelligence, um, linguistic, word, word play, words like paint. So I like that because I remember watching someone do parkour once and he, and he, in the interview after he said, <clears throat> you know, people have always thought that I wasn't very smart. And he goes, I realized that my body was really, really, really smart. And, you know, he's parkouring (laughs) off of huge buildings, you know. And so I just love that he reframed it, you know, because there are so many forms of smart. And yeah, maybe I'm not smart in one area. You know, I can't, I'm not a gardener, but I love math, you know. And so, so that way, especially with unschooling, we just loosely reference it, you know? So if we've been baking a lot lately, let's go for a hike. And if we've been reading a lot lately, let's create a game from scratch or, you know, but it is, um, it's intense. And when I, a lot of my friends want to do it and they're not in a position to be able to do it. And I completely respect that. Anyone who's like, Oh my God, I would never do that. I just think I completely understand why you wouldn't. Yeah. What's the reason for, for doing it the way you do it? And is there a structure to it or is that sort of more intuitive learning that you just sort of keep chasing the balance of like analytic versus creativity or something like that? Indoor yeah. versus outdoor. Yeah. The, the latter. I mean, it's very much follow the, the flow of the day. So really, um, so there winds up being a semblance of a routine, but there's no rigidity to it, you know, and we have a lot of tutors come in and my son's just launched his own streetwear company. What? <laughs> he is pigeon legit. For kids or for adults? For both. Oh. <laughs> I'll get you a t-shirt. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's expressed in so many different ways and he, he's got ideas a mile a minute. So for us, it's about, you know, which, which one are we going to follow today? Um, and then we bring in tutors if we need to. He takes gymnastics class. He's, wow. you know, we just want to make sure that all the itches that can be scratched are scratched with sure. the time being limited. And it's a resource thing too, you know, just financially something to consider because, you know, you can out, you can weigh both, like how much is tuition for certain schools and, but then parents and caregivers, you know, we want, we want to be expressed and have careers and work too. So. Yeah. So what's the reason? Why, why, why do you want to do it like that? Well, one of the main reasons was that I was touring all the time. So I needed to have my family with me because there was just, I'm an attachment family person, right? So there's no way I'm going to just not see them for six months or. Right. Yeah, it's not going to happen. So that was the main impetus to begin with, but it was actually super intuitive. My parents are both teachers and my dad was a principal forever and, and they taught everything from, you know, first grade all the way into college university. So, so they have this whole sort of wide ranging perception of what teaching even is. And my dad would just, you know, nonstop teach me all the time to the point where I'd have to say, Hey, you know, 
<laughs> give me a minute. I don't care if I spell that wrong. You know, and now my son's doing that with me. And I, and I, I say to my son, you know, I'm the only one that's kind of <laughs> taking a peek over your shoulder around this part. So give me a break. You know, <laughs> he's like, okay, okay, okay. You can keep doing it. <clears throat> but um, so mostly it was for touring. And then the other part was really just that it was intuitive. I love learning so much and ongoing education that when it's too formalized, I think that's great for if you're trying to get your, you know, if you want to become a doctor, if you, you know, going to school is the greatest. Um, but for, for some of the learning, I think really following what they need and what I've noticed with my kids is that they take breaks really, really naturally. So my daughter will be in the middle of something that's a lot of activity, a lot of color, a lot of everything. And then she'll just turn to me and say, I'm just going to go lie down for a minute. Hmm. And I'll go, that's a great idea. <laughs> so it she'll feels go lie like down. Uh, they can chase their balance better. They're learning how to, they're learning how to, they're learning autonomy kind of. Yeah. And, and how to navigate age. their own natural rhythm. That's, right. that's what I think it is. It's, you know, culture in so many ways with our nine to five and our work addiction, our praising people that overwork, it, there's right. so many messages to go against the body's natural rhythm, right? So unschooling is super body rhythm. So if you wake mm -hmm. up one day and you're like, I, you know, and they rarely, if we have things that are planned, they rarely cancel. So when they do, we really honor it. Like, yeah. okay, he, you know, really shouldn't be there today, you know? Mm, I feel like I've been thinking a lot about this whole um, sort of everything that's going on in this world today and everything is structured and the way that in institutions operate and who's in charge and everything. And I'm like, man, I feel like, you know, there and also I went to Egypt um, like a month ago and for a couple of weeks and got an education there and learning about how what I'm going to say sort of like was uh, part of it was learned over their experience, but this patriarchy that essentially what I feel like happened was in my opinion, back in the Egyptian days, you'll go and we'll look at all these temples and pyramids, but really the temples are where everything has the writing and the hieroglyphs and um, the, the, the stories all included a triad, which is a, a, a man, a woman and a child. And then essentially like it became the Trinity, Holy Trinity, and then women were gone and the Romans came in and their religion. And I got, I know religion is so deep for you and goes back all the way to childhood. What cradle were you Catholic? Yeah. So, you know, and it feels like the Romans came in and all of a sudden they, they chipped all the faces off of everything in Egypt, like all the, all the beautiful, you know, walls and everything, they chip the faces off. And I'm like, holy crap. It feels like that's kind of when the patriarchy really like went upswing and, you know, women were sort of taken out of the equation for everything. Everything was not only revised, but you know, all, all the men were writing it to their own, to suit their own vision. And ego and purpose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I mean, the, even the the pervasive message that there is such thing as better than, worse than, whether it's gender or, you know, that beautiful book, Cast, um, you know, the idea that there's better or worse is just pretty comical. <laughs> doesn't totally. mean you're not faster, you're a faster runner or driver, or doesn't mean, doesn't mean we don't have different capacities, it just means the the value, our value is equal, you know. I mean, that's, patriarchy is completely anathema to the idea of egalitarianism it's it's 
it's so violent. <laughs> really, Alana, it's violent patriarchy. Tell me more about that. <laughs> well, it feels like it's operating out of the ego so much more. Like a woman just like, I've heard it a lot lately, but then every now and again, there'll be a man that will reflect it back and they'll be like, like women just can do more. You just have more love. You just have more, 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 like you're just more of things. And um, at the core of it though, just, you know, creating and, and, you know, creating life and have just more love inside. And it's not that you can't, a man can't love, but women just kind of lead with the heart a little bit more. And so if like on the sort of like uh, heels of you talking about how you, how you um, school your children and how you teach them, it's like you're teaching them how to love themselves too. Like, and if we can shift from more of a patriarchal sort of mindset of like fit in the box, do this thing, get it done. Right. Like there's so much rigidity to it. And um, like a, women leading are going to come from that heart space of like love and compassion and softness and honoring yourself and how you're feeling and how you're doing that day and letting the day lead you as opposed to following this like highly Doctrine. You know, rigid <laughs> curriculum um, where you start to have to detune and detach from yes. yourself and your yes. body and how you're actually feeling in order to operate. Like, oh, I, know. I think there's Ouch. such detachment. And I think that part of what we're moving into, and I'm curious if you think so, is into this space where we're learning how to, because we can't, how do we know what to trust? Do we trust the news? No. Do we trust the newspapers? No. Do we trust <laughs> yeah. even documentaries? No. Who the no. heck paid for it, right? Like yeah. it was pro propaganda. Yeah. Like we don't even know what to trust anymore. Nice. And the only gauge we're going to learn be, we're, that we need, the one that we need to learn how to use is our body to mm. give us the information. Mm. And it does. Um, and I yeah. think that only comes through being able to tap into that sort of the, the, the feminine, the femininity within you. Um, and, and that's just, you know, that's, that's woman. Yeah. And feminine, even in man bodies and non-gender identifying bodies too. It's like the feminine is what has been murdered by patriarchy, yeah. right? Yeah. Kind of the divine feminine. Obviously I'm not trying to, it's like the yeah. femininity, the divine exactly. feminine versus yeah. within, mm -hmm. within all of us. So uh, yes, the the easiest and and quickest path to shifty patriarchy is to just start by being respectful to women. Period. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just start there, um, and then beyond that, it's also just honoring the vulnerable, honoring the the water of it all, you know. But I think what's happened now with how much stimulation there is in the world, depending upon our temperament, you know, there's. <laughs> It just gets too much in here. Like, I think I think we can do 100 things, and now it just feels like there's 300 things. So, And that's just me personally. Um, so I, I, like, I like that we have the capacity to multitask, mm -hmm. and um, my projection is to be careful with that <laughs> because then life can sometimes take advantage of it, and patriarchy definitely will take advantage of it. It'll just say, give us everything you got, and we'll take it and see you later. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think, you know, this is a really great time to be alive as a woman. Mm. Um, and what, I, what I'm really keeping my eye on in my own personal world, among many other things, is, is the, the cluttering, you know, because if I'm going to go meditate, there's a Peter Levine talks about, I think he calls it anxiety or sorry, meditation induced anxiety or something like that. So those of us who go to meditate, it's not, basically the point is, <laughs> is that with certain trauma, meditating is not going to actually help. Mm -hmm. Because then we're left alone with these thoughts or these ruminations or these tapes that play. So, so sometimes meditating alone is actually not the way to go. It depends on where we're at, I guess. 
I feel like I just went off on a great tangent. <laughs> oh, it's it's all just it's 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 the exploration, right? It's the it's trying to figure it out. It's trying to figure out what you need, and you know, I think that you do a really good job of that. And um, you know, I think it's really cool that you teach your kids. I'm so fascinated by all that. And and then you know, like what we were talking about with um, uh, what's it, uh, multiple intelligence? I mean. Can you imagine if our world stepped into a space where we all learned what our intelligence was instead of having to fit into a box? Like, I believe being biological beings that there is a natural balance. Not only is there a natural fix for everything that is wrong with us in nature, but also that we, we are nature and that we balance each other. And so imagine the beauty if we could all just kind of contribute what we, what was, what was, what we were good at and passionate about usually what we're usually we're passionate about things we're good at. Um, and, and, and how I feel, I trust that there would be a balance in existence if we all just contributed to what we, what was our natural intelligence. I really completely agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that all of us expressing what we were here to express is, I mean, makes it worth being here, you know? And if it's not, if we're not expressing who we are, then it's this, it's, still a play it's still a presentation but it's it's not um it's just not so fun to be here if i'm if i'm if my ladder is leaned on the, a different house mm-hmm. you know it's like if mm-hmm. it's leaning in the in the direction that has me be able to show up and serve and be expressed and um feel um then i'm then i'm in and i actually think the sensation in our bodies of inquiry and going within i think that also counters patriarchy because patriarchy is so out of body you know yeah, it's, it's right? very it's very head at best yeah um i love being in the head but um but it has its role yeah i mean like a like a filter or a sieve or something you know you know what i really wanted to do i don't know i will probably it's just going to take too much time and i'll have like seven thousand questions for everyone but I wanted to go through your albums and be like, what was the sort of catalyst and lesson with each of them? Be- but I don't know if we'll have, let's just go with the last one. Let's just go with such pretty forks in the road. Um, so why, cause you, you know, you don't write albums like on a yearly basis or mm-hmm. every other year. It, it takes a while before I get my music from you. <laughs> uh, so- <laughs> I'm going to look at that. I'm going to really look at that. No, no, no. It's all right on time. And it all is coming from such an organic place, which I think is why you've stood the test of time and why it you have such dedicated devotee fans like mm. myself, because it's authentic and you can't rush that, right? Yeah. And so it's just got to be natural and flow. So mm-hmm. what brought this one on? This one was postpartum. I started it in Malibu with Onyx. And I mean, I think of the song losing the plot uh, and diagnosis as me just going, okay, so I feel really pathologized. I feel, you know, everything about postpartum, unless someone's experienced it, it's a tough one to explain. I mean, depression and anxiety is, it's just become more ubiquitous now. So people have a general sense of what you mean when you say depressed or anxious. Um, Postpartum in general have whole other elements to it of these invasive thoughts and, they're terrifying, you know, so it's, um, I wanted to write, I needed to write to, to tell the truth about the, about my experience, um, after having, 
given birth to Onyx, my daughter, and and then I kept going, and there was the, the disillusionment with, okay, I'm not a 21-year-old in Hollywood anymore. What does that mean? Why am I here? Um, am I, you know, the am I going to try and look 21 for the rest of my life? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, clearly not. Um, and yeah, these songs were, some of them were retrospective. So some of them were about traumas, sexual abuse, healing traumas. And then some of it was my relationship with Los Angeles. Some of it was um, a real identity crisis of like, you know, spiritually, I know that a lot of times a spiritual turning point for people is, is like you said earlier, when you're kind of alchemically ground into something challenging. Although I've learned a lot of things without, with ease as well. So I want to give the, a moment to the to the idea that we can learn things not just through hardship yeah, too. Yeah, fair, totally fair. Um, but yeah, is there any song on there that you want me to talk about more specifically, or just the the whole record, basically? Just the yeah, whole. Yeah, I just think because I feel like there's got to be an impetus on some level. And there's yeah, something and the, sort of there's a to 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 put you into the creative state, and that's yeah. what I'm curious about. Yeah, what what starts it? Actually, it's it's just a little voice. <laughs> the voice goes, "It's time." And then I go, okay, it's time to write a record. And then I figure out what studio we're going to use and who who I want to write it with. I love writing alone, but I live to collaborate. So Mike Farrell and I worked on this record together. And I, I called it the piano record the whole time because it was just us alone in a room with a piano and a, and a mic. So, And then we flushed it out with Alex Hope and Catherine Marks both direct, um, directing it. I call it directing. I really think the music business would benefit from that word because sometimes producer, producer makes sense, but I guess executive producer is what they call director. Anyway, <laughs> credits. Um, but yeah, it just, there's a turning point where all it's physical, like it's time to write. And if I don't write, I'm going to get sick. If I don't express myself, I'm going to get really depressed. So it's exciting and daunting when that turning point comes. If all were equal, I would love to put a record out every two every two years. But now it's exciting, this new climate, it's exciting and daunting, is the idea of just kind of ongoingly putting out music. I remember yeah. 20 years ago, I was like, why don't, why don't we just put out a song whenever you feel like it? And people were like, oh, Alanis. <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work We've like got that. decades and decades of doing just, it like this. It's exactly. just fine. Don't. Don't, don't upset any apple carting. Yeah. And then, um, but now there it is. So the pro of it having been sort of one note before was it would be touring, falling down and recovering, and then writing another record again and rallying again and touring. So it was just this cycle. Mm. And there were times where I could, in theory, be under the rock and hide under there and generate stuff under there. Um, whereas now it's constant so it's not every four years i'm doing something it's there's a new song coming out next week there's a there's there's new songs and one-offs for lack of a better term um that are happening now so it's it's constant expression and constant generative and all these other areas like animated shows and you know there's you know, speaking of speaking of mania, the ideas don't stop, basically. So my whiteboard is full. And then I have an incredible team around me of people who are willing to work with me or collaborate with me. Some things like the musical taking eight or nine years, you know, and other things taking an afternoon and recording it, you know, so what's going on with the musical? Um, the musical is coming back post pandemic. Yeah. I don't know exactly the date, but it'll come back to Broadway. And then they're opening in Sydney. 
through opening a Jagged Little Pill musical too. That's so cool. Yeah. I have to ask maybe like my, one of my favorites are like old school and I just have so many memories um, because I was in England at the very beginning of my stint there and the album had just come out. And I remember that's like all I played, but when supposed former infatuation junkie came out, I was like, Oh my gosh, that one seems so much. It's so deep. Mm. I'm yeah, curious what the impetus for that was. It's, it's like, did you go to India and have an experience and meet some <laughs> gurus? And like, I'm just so curious because, yeah, and or, or just like, I, I just to me, it's like such a deep album. Thank you. No, I that one was really daunting to write because a lot of people were wanting me in some way, whether they knew it or not, they were asking me to repeat Jagged Little Pill, like make right. part two, right? Um, and also wherever I went, grocery stores, anywhere, the, the only question that was being posed to me is when's your next record? When's your next record? And the more I heard that, the more I kind of wound tight, to be honest. Um, and I remember going to Toronto to visit my friend Tim Thorny, and I, my intention was to start to write supposed. And the studio was set up, beautiful candles. It was idyllic. And I turned to my friend Tim and I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to write. I don't want to be here. And he was the first person who said, okay, well, then let's not write. Let's go see a movie. You know, mm. and we went to a movie. We had a sandwich. And then when we got back, of course, I started writing because I just felt like I had the freedom to write or not write. And, you know, I, I thank my friend Tim all the time for, for just providing that space and freedom to not write, you know. So mm. I had come back from India and I had gone there to just sort of step away from everything and just be a brown-haired girl from Ottawa, Canada again, you know. And, yeah, I don't know if India itself, I mean, it's a, to me, it's, a, it's one giant altar, you know, everywhere. It just smells like an altar. Everything is prayerful there and in Bali and certain places and probably Egypt where you just were too. There's a sense of soulfulness and spirit that I wish we could sort of trickle around the whole planet sometimes. But mm. um, but when I came back from that, I remember feeling liberated somehow, just somehow the idea of going to India and letting go allowed me to just think, okay, well, what do you want to write? What do I want to write about? What what do I care about right now? And And that's, it was almost like there was a fork in the road at that moment. Am I going to try and attempt to repeat, which I actually don't even think I could do. I think if I tried to repeat, I couldn't do it. Um, Or am I going to just keep seeing what comes and writing what is happening, you know, and and I chose the latter and I'm so happy I did. Yeah. Well, do you think that it's, uh, because I I agree, the idea that it would be possible to just do another Jagged Little Pill album is, is, um, you know, might not even be possible. Is there something you think that you left behind with that album personally that, cause it's like when we change the things we see change, right? So like, how could you can't really, you can't be that Alanis anymore. So what was it that changed from that point? The turning point was to the degree that ego was involved and service, it shifted because my ego scratched that itch and grabbed the brass ring and swallowed it, you know, zeitgeist wise and, (laughs) you know, you know, (laughs) uh, breaking records and all kinds of really heady sort of egoic things. Um, And then I just thought, well, why would I keep going? Because a lot of this is not actually really enjoyable for me, my temperament. Um, But I could see that people in the audience, people coming to the shows were being given permission in a way permission to be human, you know? So I thought, well, that's, 
I mean, if someone were to ask me what on my deathbed, like what was the most important thing is just to be able to offer love in macrocosmic ways and in tiny microcosmic intimate ways, you know? So I could see that through my career and through expressing myself that everything I valued was being imbued into all of it. Whatever I wrote, whatever I performed, how I moved, it was all informed by this, this idea of just wanting to show up, you know, and, and be of service and, and leave the room a little cleaner than how you found it. <laughs> that's a great gift. Do you feel that that's your purpose or what do you feel your purpose is? Just, I think we're all unique filters and we all have these quirky intelligences and, and abilities. And if we can hone in on who we are to that degree, what our talents are, what our capacities are, then we can work with those, you know, and then this filter is, is contributing that. It's kind of like another, another way of saying what you said earlier, which is that we're going to if we know who we are in terms of our talents and our intelligences, then we can show up and use them. And then life's a little bit more jumping out of bed in the morning versus the daunting, mm. you know, it, no matter where we are, even if we kind of hate our job, is there a way for us to, to show up from this place of service? You know, that just makes it all worth it to me. Cause otherwise I don't think I'd, I mean, being in the public eye's coolish. Um, but I don't think I'd want to just stay in the public eye randomly for no reason. Yeah. And I think what's happened in the 70s and 60s, certainly ego was everywhere, but a lot of people were, you know, wanting to be expressed. And that was part of what their fame story was. But now it's like fame in and of itself seems to be some kind of end. Like fame is the check mark, And I'm like, oh, God, it's just so it's so hollow. <laughs> it's so lonely, you know. Um, and I think it exacerbates anything that was going on before fame. So if there were any insecurities or hyper defensiveness or anything, if that was going on before fame can almost be assured that it'll, it'll triple as soon as, uh, as soon as fame comes into the picture. hundred percent. I asked this question to someone else I interviewed a little while back and I asked whether or not we actually ever experience anyone else, or we're only always experiencing ourselves through other people. And so when you throw fame into it it's like it's like it's like it turns from a, a little flame into a blazing fire because there's so much input there's so much information coming at you and from fans from people organizing your day to you know family to friends it's like it just gets so much and so much information but it's really i don't know do you i'm curious do you think that do you know what i'm trying to ask like do you think that given the fact that we are seeing everything through our own filter and sort of it, flipping it, pr projecting and being triggered essentially the whole time, like in base, and it only has to do with your orientation. Do you think we really ever actually experience anyone else truly, or are we just always experiencing ourselves or a varying degree of ourself? Well, there is no difference is the first thought that came to me. There's no difference. I mean, there's a difference between personality or hair length or, but there is no difference. You know, the whole metaphor of we're all a bunch of snowflakes falling out of the same cloud, you know? So, but I do believe that there can be a state of awareness and consciousness that is brought where there can be a, a real beholding. I do believe that's possible mm. in the human body. I do. Mm. 
Beautiful. Doesn't it, you know, and, and it, I think the degree to which we can stop the thoughts of assessing and labeling and judging, and those are all normal things, super normal. But if there can be some breaks or those voices get a little quieter and then we're just sitting consciousness aware of consciousness sitting, then we have this dire this direct experience with what's across from us, whether it's a human or a bookshelf or a light, you know, it's, it becomes very filled with wonder and awe. You know, it's almost like if we're both looking at a sunset and there's birds flying, we're just having a direct experience, no words, just direct experience with that color or that sensuality. And then if one of us goes, oh, it's 5 p.m. and the sun's about to go down, all of a sudden we're in the we're in our head about it. It's not as direct of an experience with that. So, so as best as I can, if I, if I can tell that I'm just projecting all over my husband or, or my friends, which I do every day, um, <laughs> um, getting really, really still and just beholding almost like we're a Martian that just landed here, which by the way, is not, <laughs> it's not that far from being able to happen by the, but right. it's like, it's like landing on this earth for the first time. And you ever have that where you're on an airplane or you're driving? Hello. And you're just like, how is this even possible that I can go this fast in the air in a tin thing? <laughs> oh, I, I literally look up to the sky and see an airplane and go, why would we think it was so weird if it was an extraterrestrial craft? Like, why? I mean, that thing's flying through the air. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's, you know, approaching life with that kind of wonder and that kind of mind blownness you know people are like if you could just be one emoji what would it be and i was like the mind blown emoji <laughs> my mind is constantly freaking blown <laughs> that's beautiful well it comes through and you know your music resonates with so many so i'm grateful for your process and thank you for sharing and and opening your heart and being vulnerable and you know i love hearing stories about you know hearing a story about writing like back in the day and it being like asked you whether or not it was true or not. And you're like, yeah, it's true. And like, yeah, it's well, then it's not coming out of the lyrics, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to ask your favorite song because I don't think that's very easy. It's like a child, right? But is there one that you were the most afraid to release that felt the most vulnerable? Well, Hands Clean is a song about basically statutory rape um the the record company people were like oh let's do a video where it's karaoke with with some some kids in there and i remember saying did you listen to the song <laughs> uh they you know apparently not everyone is a lyric person so when hands clean came out i got terrified of, about thinking that that would require me to speak more often on you know, this was however many, 15 years, 10 years before Me Too happened, maybe. So I was scared. My palms were sweaty, but I'm always scared. I'm never not scared. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm ever not afraid. It doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. That's good advice right there. Thank you for that. I will take that and run with it. Yes, you already have, by the way. <laughs> or drive with it. Yeah, Wait, that's over. No more driving. <laughs> yeah, what's next for you? Oh, my God, I want to interview you. Anytime, anytime. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. you so much. And, you know, I'm just such a giant fan. I can't wait for you to go on tour. I won't tell you when I'm showing up. But come back after. <laughs> Although I'm... You know what? Someone will know. And I'll probably, probably figure find out. out tickets, so somebody might know. Just wear a um, wig. <laughs> thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.